Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Sequelizer, the podcast about the follow-up films worth caring about. I'm your host, Rob Trench, and on today's episode, we will be discussing a classic 80s sequel, which, within the past year or so, has been watched, or should I say, witnessed, by movie fans the world over, as a result of its franchise's latest entry. If that hint wasn't glaringly obvious enough, the film I'm referring to, of course, is Mad Max 2, The Road Warrior, directed by George Miller and starring Mel Gibson as its titular figure. Joining me to talk about this film today is a very special guest. From all the way out in Montreal, Quebec, we have writer and ardent cinephile Derek Godin. How's it going, Derek? I am good. How are you, Rob? I'm cool. Um, Did I pronounce your last name right? There's like a million ways to pronounce my last name, but complicating matters is that I come from a bilingual family. Okay. So um, usually I say uh, it for English. Uh, in English, it's pronounced like uh, Godin. R- Godin rhymes with Rodin, Rodin. Like, the, like the sculptor. Right. Okay. So I, I basically just fucked it up. Well, it's, it's not so bad. I mean, <laughs> like within my own family, I've heard Godin, Godin. Uh, okay. I've heard it seven ways, so it's fine. Okay, so it's sort of like um, the accent, I guess, or just sort of like the um, like the vowel nature as it's sort of the crescendo off of it more so than anything. Yeah. All right. Okay. Uh, just so I got that established. Um, so I guess just to start things off, uh, thanks for coming on the show, of course. Um, what is it about sequels which uh, interest you the most? Um, sequels present like an opportunity to me to sort of build on, I guess, the, for lack of a better term, the mythos or the, uh, the, uh, the territory established by the first installment of the film. Mm-hmm. And great sequels, uh, for my money, do that. They expound, they expound upon the mythology of the first film. They find other stories within that same universe. And um, the not-so-great ones appear, are like you know generally retreats or cash grabs or whatnot. Or at least they have that feeling. It's it's really a matter of vibe. Right. There's all these sort of different kind of contingency factors to like accommodate for. But really, like when you are making a sequel, it is all about going up and above rather than just, as you say, you know, retreading stuff that's already happened. It seems like in those sort of cases, the movie itself has just seemed like a cash grab for producers trying to bank off of like a successful sort of hit film, whatever of that nature. I mean, yeah. in the like the like uh, I don't not to jump the gun too much, but I feel like the Road Warrior is uh, one of like like if not the platonic ideal of the direct of the direct sequel, pretty close as far as like just you know finding different stories inside that same universe uh, while being completely different in a way from its predecessor. But I figure we'll get into that a little later. Yeah, of course. Um, we can just sort of talk on like a related note for now. Because what really defines the Road Warrior is like its whole kind of standalone nature. You don't really have to have seen the original Mad Max film, or you don't really have to even seen the follow-up film in order to get it. Like it totally exists as its own entity. Uh, can you think of like any other movies that kind of fit that kind of paradigm? Uh, like uh, sequels that are, that are good standalone movies. I guess so. Yeah. I mean, like uh, a few weeks ago, we talked about Evil Dead Two, which was in that kind of same category where they basically like remake the original film or they try to recontextualize it for an audience who may have not caught up, but it seems like its own sort of thing at the same time. 
Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna go uh, I'm gonna go into the vault a little bit. Um, have you seen the John Himes Universal Soldier movies? Oh yeah, like Day of Reckoning. And, yeah, Day of uh, Regeneration Reckoning. and all that stuff. Okay, that, yeah. That those operate well as standalone movies because the order in which I saw those Universal Soldiers movies was Regeneration, uh, Regeneration, Day of Reckoning, and then I saw the original from the nineties. Right. And they all work perfectly well on their own. You don't need to see one to have seen one for the others to make sense. So right. that's like off the top of my head, that's the one that I uh, that's the one that I would think fits that uh, that bill. And would you say that those follow up films after you saw the original Universal Soldiers would they kind of you know operate on like a completely different terrain, or that they actually maybe are you know superior to the films which they originated from? Well, they come from the same kind of primordial stew to begin with, and mm-hmm. they have their own different sets of uh, sets of qualities because uh, early '90s Roland Emmerich is a very different beast from John Himes, and the uh, and yeah, the movies just have different qualities. Like the uh, the original from '92, I think it is, or '93. Right. It's just this this just junky, great sort of cultural Xerox of an action movie. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have any of like the darkness or or, forebod- or uh, foreboding elements of the Himes movies. It's no, no. It's really, it's really, they're really the same in name and character only. Right. It seems like the original movie is all about like kind of bringing together these two mega action superstars and putting them into the sort of uh you know sci-fi territory, but not really kind of going beneath the surface on that. Like they don't really try to do anything interesting, I guess. Well, also the passage of time kind of helps those movies because uh, you don't hire Jean-Claude Van Damme in 1993 for the same reason you hire Jean-Claude Van Damme in like 2012 because Jean-Claude Van Damme is sort of aged into this sort of great um, sort of – this great sort of stoic acting style that's not so much action as it is just sort of being uh, the physical embodiment of like a bummer. Mm Mm-hmm. And 21st century Jean-Claude Van Damme is kind of underrated for like how just fucking sad it is. Oh, can, can I curse on this pod? Oh, yeah. Go ahead. Awesome. Yeah. You can say whatever the fuck you want. Excellent. So, yeah, I feel like uh, – <laughs> I feel like – have you seen the movie Replicant? Replicant? No, I haven't. It's this it's – this, uh, it's, I think it's a direct-to-video movie from 2001. Okay. And it, it's, Jean-Claude Van Damme plays a double role in it. And it's not superb, but I think it's like the first example of like – bummer Jean-Claude Van Damme where it's Jean-Claude Van Damme the sort of stoic uh sort of Keaton faced actor mm-hmm. right and uh and yeah you you hire early Jean-Claude Van Damme because he could do stunts and had an accent right and it seems like you know in this latter kind of uh, period of his career he's you know taking like a self-reflexive notion on like the sort of films which he's known for by making films such as like we described with Universal Soldier and even stuff like JCBD where he's deconstructing right. his persona, you know, and like allowing it to be more fleshed out as a result. This is true. And uh, there's also movies like Enemies Closer where it's clearly like Jean-Claude Van Damme of old. There's just mm-hmm. kind of really bizarre. Right. But uh, no, it's uh, I like this direction that Jean-Claude Van Damme has taken in his career. Of course. Yeah. Would you just say those Universal Soldier films, would they be among maybe your favorite sequels or like what would be around like your favorite sequel films? Uh, favorite sequels. Um, Road Warrior. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Evil Dead 2 was mentioned. That's really good. That's of course. Yeah. probably one of my favorite films. 
Yeah. Oh fuck, aliens! Jesus. Oh yeah, that's the shit. I mean, I'm doing I'm doing an, uh, a project where I'm doing a bunch of 1986 movies, and that's like number one. So yeah, aliens. Yeah, that's even like the cover art on that one. <laughs> that is. Count. Yeah. So uh, so yeah, I think that's a that's a healthy bunch. I think that's a if not the top few, it's definitely like you know, in the top ten, top fifteen. What do you think? It's about uh, 80s sequels, which is so like interesting. Um, a lot of the films which we've either covered so far on this podcast or are going to cover later on in the season come from that era. Do you feel like it has something to do with lots of uh, producers and writers in Hollywood trying to experiment with the whole genre format? Or do you think it has to do with maybe like the sort of resurgence in maybe like home video culture and just trying to like, you know, churn out as many of these as possible in order to sort of capture the audience? Um, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that the 1980s for all the great movies that the 1980s produced, it's probably the worst decade for studio filmmaking. And I feel like there's a, there's, there's a cynicism in like the amount like, I mean, I don't want to be like super cynical, but I feel like the amount of sequels in the eighties or those sequels that came out in the eighties, a lot of them were not that great. The ones we're talking about, I feel are the exception to the rule. Um, but I think home video has something to do with it. Um, but that's kind of a different story, but I do think there's a kind of, the eighties was sort of the, the cash grab decade. And for every aliens or every, uh, for every evil dead two, you get like a, a lot of junk. Mm-hmm. Right. For sure. So just I think because, it was just I think it was just sort of a, the studio mentality. Of course, because you have the period where new Hollywood sort of dies out towards the end of the seventies, and you have this whole sort of influx period before you get the American indie scene to start kind of like you know fluctuating outwards, and it is just like lots and lots of garbage being kind of pilfered out to the theaters, um, and sort of trying to compete with home video as well. So. Yeah. Well, I guess you, I guess you can point to like the, um, I mean, I don't know if I'm, I don't know if this is an accurate statement at all, but I feel like in the same way that you can like point to like Jaws as being the first like blockbuster, mm-hmm. you could point to like Empire as being the first like massive sequel, right. and from that point on, everyone's like, oh man, you can do this, you can get like the second movie, right? Let's do that, right? And it's all and, about kind of finding that first movie, and as a result, you have all these people making follow-ups to films which maybe don't even deserve them. And, uh, yeah, so that's, that's my thought on that. Or at least that's my theory. Mm-hmm, for sure. All right. I think that's a good point to sort of transition into our first break. When we return, we'll be going right into discussing Mad Max 2, The Road Warrior. Stick around. And we're back to discuss Mad Max 2, The Road Warrior. Mad Max, Rockestansky, returns in this follow-up, which picks up a few years after 1979's Mad Max. In this story, he must assist a community of settlers 
fend off a group of terrorizing bandits against the backdrop of a post-apocalyptic wasteland society where it's every man for himself. So I just want to turn to you, Derek. Uh, what is it about The Road Warrior which compelled you to choose it for this episode of The Sequelizer? Um, I don't remember when you had put out the call for uh, for people to be on the podcast. Right. But I must have had Fury Road, Mad Max Fury Road on the brain. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, Road Warrior is an excellent movie. And I'm pretty sure that when I asked you, I was worried that someone had already scooped it up. Because, like, when I think of great sequels, usually one of the first ones that comes to mind is this movie. So, um, so yeah, it's a combination of several things. Of course. And the fact that you said you were watching Fury Road, which kind of incepted the idea for you, would you say that there's maybe lots of parallels between that film and The Road Warrior? I mean, of course... The interesting thing about, you know, the way that George Miller has laid out this franchise, every film kind of, as we discussed earlier, exists within its own sort of like parameters. But Road Warrior, I think, holds the distinction of being the most well-liked film of the bunch. I think for like a number of different reasons. It's a lot more sleeker. It's, you know, completely different from the original film, but like in enough ways where it can sort of operate on its own kind of distinct kind of qualities and I sort of feel like that was the reasoning why it was considered to be the, I guess, blueprint for where they're going to take Fury Road, especially with the whole sort of emphasis on, you know, cars, uh, racing, and just the whole sort of like, you know, weird, I guess, creature-esque, uh, grotesque brutality, which isn't really a part of Beyond Thunderdome, which is almost like a quasi-kids movie for some reason. <laughs> I'm sorry, what was the question? Oh, sorry, I just kind of went off to a tangent. Uh, but just, like, I guess you basically, you, know, you basically answered, like, why you chose the movie. Uh, I'm guessing you probably rewatched the film to prepare for this episode. So was there anything that came up for you this time seeing the film? Um, let's see. There was a, I had forgotten the, uh, the, the initial sort of uh, Academy Ratio montage with right. the... With the with the voiceover, which I thought was, I had the thought of, this is, it actually extends to a lot of what the movie does, where it is, in in terms of like uh, editing and uh, and mise en scène, it's all it's it's all dirt simple. It is really bare bones execution, uh, but it's it's very stylish in its cheapness. Mm-hmm. Now, you were talking two seconds ago about if there are any like parallels between. Uh, this one and Fury Road. And my thought on that is that Fury Road is basically the version of Road Warrior on steroids because uh, every movie gets bigger. Every movie costs more money to make uh, than the previous one. And there's a kind of... The movies kind of visually rhyme with each other. There's a focus on like widescreen expanse there's a focus on uh, just power shots of, of the Outback. There's a focus on sort of the terrifying automobiles. Um, but, of course, the scale that Fury Road operates on is much, 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 much grander. Um, but Road Warrior is a slick movie, especially if you could ca- compare it to like just a sort of straight car exploitation movie like Mad Max, the original was. But it is slick in its own way. It is very tightly edited. One thing that I appreciate in this film specifically is that it's an hour and a half. There's not a second wasted in this film. Like 
like uncount like so many movies that I watch are like at like anywhere between fifteen to thirty minutes too long. Mm-hmm. Like there are a bunch of movies that are like anywhere between an hour fifty to two hours ten that could be trimmed down to uh, trimmed down by half an hour for for you know for uh, you could cut out X Y or Z thing and it would still run. It'd be a lot more tight, but it's there. What I appreciate about Road Warrior is that it's super tight. It is right. so light on its feet, and it costs you just an hour and a half to watch. And I, that's an underrated quality in a film. Right, that's like the ideal runtime. It's not too short, but it's enough where you're like, yeah, I could find like you know 95 minutes of my schedule just to take out and you know take in this movie. Yeah, exactly. And like as you say, you know, the way in which the visual exposition of the film is crafted, there's so much stuff that they could have just been like had like a side character explain, but like it's not. It's totally up to you know the cues you know implanted from the viewer's perspective, which work to great effect in terms of being very uh as you also said just like you know not basic but like you know it's easy just to sort of kind of understand the way the world is crafted and you know all the stuff that's kind of brought into it and i feel that quality is also very apparent in fury road a film which every time i saw it for the first five or six times it felt like it was completely different or i was reacting to everything the uh on-screen ephemera in a completely different sort of context based on what had happened the previous time essentially and it's that kind of visual language which i think is so important in you know appearing not even just in sequels but just in films in general the way in which you communicate things to the audience and the way in which you aren't trying to you know be condescending to them but the way in which you are respecting them essentially yeah the devil's in the details and this movie doesn't skimp on that it's like everything is there's there's a kind of not I don't want to say hyper specificity, but there is there's definitely an internal logic to how everything is designed and performed. Right. Yeah. I think I saw in a few interviews or so that George Miller talks about the whole idea of like the Western motifs, which are very much apparent in this movie. I mean, you could honestly compare this to something like, you know, uh, 50s or 60s style american westerns about a drifter who comes into town helps protect you know their sort of you know defenses against like you know incoming attackers and after he saved the day he leaves off to have another adventure and it's that kind of operation which you see across all the mad max movies but it's this one where it's the most you know defined for sure uh yeah and this is another one of the ways where it rhymes with fury road because that's it's basically that same journey mm-hmm, for sure and they're both like ma- major chase films as well Ah, oh, the chases in this oh my god the chases in this such like there's like there's like three other movies i can think of where cars are shot as well as as this and like three of them are directed by george miller <laughs> and yeah. the only other one i can think off the top of my head is two lane blacktop yeah for sure uh, just even the opening sequence of the movie, uh, it kind of does that sort of pull out from, uh, I guess, the header of his engine, um, and he's just kind of going right against the primary sort of antagonists of the film. From that point onward, it's like you're basically anticipating every chase scene that's going to happen in this movie because you know it's going to be the most memorable part of the movie. You know, it's it doesn't get better than that. And this movie repeats it like five times. There's <laughs> like four excellent car chases that would have been 
the pinnacle in most other movies, and then they finish it with an like one of the best car chases I've seen in a film. Right. It's like 15 minutes long. It's basically like the climax of the movie, but like, you know, you're just completely enraptured in it the whole time. Yeah, even just like watching it is one thing, and just it's just, just a marvel of sort of direction and, and planning out and execution. It's just, it's, it's really good. Right. If you want to do a good study of action cinema, just taking that final car chase of the film and deconstructing it down to the base unit is a great way to sort of understand like editing, continuity, all that kind of factors. Yeah, this is how you cover a car. This is how – one thing actually uh, uh, regarding to uh, – I mean one thing regarding the way that the cars are photographed in this film is that George Miller uses a lot of sort of sped up footage. Mm-hmm. And if there's like – if there's one thing I'm going to knock the movie on is that sometimes it's kind of totally weird, but that's because that's mostly a me thing because mm-hmm. just sped up footage of things just kind of looks like comedy to me. Well, it just reminds me of like Benny Hill and shit. Right. I mean, he did that in uh, the opening like pre-credit part of Fury Road and it was right. really like, I actually thought like, man, are they playing this movie on like, you know, 48 frames per second or something? Like what's going on? It's like, obviously it's more evident in like a digital um, mind frame, not so much on 35 depending on the way they shot it. Yeah, it also depends on what's going on in the frames. Like when it's like when it's like one car hauling ass to pull uh, away from the pack of cars, it's one thing. But when it's like people running to their cars and motorcycles and then heading out on the highway, that's another thing. Then it kind of looks yakety saxy. Of course, yeah, I could totally see that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that's a very minor gripe. That's a very right. minor gripe. Right, it's not even so much of a like a criticism per se. It's just sort of like if I have to have something to have a problem with, I guess that would be it. Yeah, it's just uh, some, it's just some tech long thing. It's no, it's literally no big deal. Right. How how do you kind of view uh, an actor like Mel Gibson in this role? Like, I would say this is the movie which didn't only put him on the map for I guess Hollywood success and fame, but it's really like, in my opinion, his most definitive role. And so interestingly enough, he honestly doesn't have that much dialogue in the movie. He's obviously just like, you know, an arbiter for the audience to sort of like, you know, project themselves onto. I think he was really good in this. Um, I don't know. I, I, I would put uh, I would put this role up against his role in the Lethal Weapon movies as, as being his most iconic. Right. Or the ones that I would most associate with him. But he's really good in in Mad Max and in Road Warrior. Um, kind of a kind of a matinee idol vibe going on in those early movies. Kind of a uh, just kind of a he was a handsome man in the late seventies and the early eighties. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, Mel Gibson is not one of cinema's greatest talkers. No, definitely but he not. is. He is one of cinema's great. Like I am in. I, like he's really good at selling pain. <laughs> he's really good at like selling injury. It's like every time I see Mel Gibson hurt in a movie, I believe he is like writhing. I believe it. Yeah, it's, and all I think the, that, it's all in the way he scrunches his face. You know. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's all it. all eyes, mouth, and in uh, uh, some of the wider shots, a lot of body language. Like that's <laughs> that's a weird thing to say, but that Mel Gibson's greatest skill as an actor is looking fucked up. <laughs> totally. Uh, are there any other like actors or characters in the film? who you feel are responsible for the film's like cultural longevity. Um, Lord Humongous, I think 
as, oh, yeah. the, as the antagonist. Yeah. Um, upon rewatching the film, and this is weird because uh, rewatching the film, he's felt less like this sort of like just like villainous, like aggro terrorists and more like just a wrestler cutting promos. Mm-hmm. Just yeah. like, oh, you have defied me. And this Sunday at WrestleMania, I'm going to steal your gas. It's it's kind of weird. And it's part of the fine line that that uh, Road Warrior walks on where and this kind of ties into the, the, the sped up camera stuff where it just toes that line of being silly. Never it toes right up to it, but never crosses. And a lot of that is just craft. A lot of that is just direction, filmmaking, uh, direction, editing, photography. I mean, it's a movie about fucking punk BDSM leather bikers. Right. It's a, and, it's continually sort of straddling that line beyond the suspension of disbelief, but it's still able to retain lots of you know realistic like levels in order to. Uh, have the audience still feel like the characters are in danger or yeah, to actually a- like, you know, do something crazy. Like that one scene when like, you know, the, the band comes in and you know, the feral kid like whips his boomerang and he fucking kills that guy. He right kills in the that guy and the other dude loses his fucking fingers. It's a gnarly film. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing you forget, or maybe not that you forget, but that you're surprised by on rewatch is that, yeah, it's an action movie, but it gets gnarly at times. Of course. Yeah. Like, Obviously, it's the you know the middle film, but like you know, in terms of like comparing it to the original film and how different it really is. I mean, because that's the thing that strikes me the most. Like the original Mad Max film, it's sort of set in like a right before the apocalypse kind of happens. It's sort of like society kind of breaks down essentially, but it doesn't really kind of have that wild and crazy sort of energy that's on display here. Or in the later Mad Max series, uh, yeah, Mad Max, like the original, is a lot more subdued. And I, I feel like, I feel like the original Mad Max uh, is, um, it has kind of an early John Carpenter vibe. Not necessarily the way that it's shot, but this the original Mad Max kind of reminded me of kind of a reverse or an inverted version of Assault on Precinct Thirteen. Right. Where it's not so much uh, uh, three people trying to keep people out. It's one person trying to – yeah, it's one person out chasing a bunch of people, not the other way around. Um, whereas uh, Road Warrior is just – this is a completely different beast. The scale is different. The scope is different. Uh, it's The moving parts are all different. Um, I mean you could have – this movie – Road Warrior could have been – Tying it back to what we were saying before, it could have been its own thing. I mean, this could have been this could have been just the road warrior. It could have been, I don't know, any other person other than Mel Gibson in that role, and the movie probably would have worked as well. Not to take any away from anything away from Mel Gibson, right? But the stories are the stories are different enough that they could be sort of divorced. That's good. That's a good point of saying it. Yeah, just the fact that I mean, I always remember back to the first time I saw the movie. Like I was in high school. Someone recommended you got to see the Road Warrior, and I was like, okay, cool. I see it's like you know the sequel to this other film, Bad Max. Do I have to see that? And they're like, no, fuck that movie, fuck the one that came <laughs> after it too. Just see the Road Warrior. It's the only one that's important. And I think you know that's honestly like a testament that I hold to this day. If I'm trying to recommend great sequels which beat the original, this is the one that always comes up for me. 
Yeah, I do like uh, Road Warrior more than Mad Max, although Mad Max is a really dope movie. And now I kind of feel like Fury Road has usurped that mantle. Ever since I saw it about a year ago now, like I, I'm still thinking about that movie. Like I still can't even believe, I can't even fathom it exists. No, I was like the the biggest the biggest thing with Fury Road is that it got made in the first place on the scale that it was made on and that it was able to sort of carry the spirit of those first couple movies into what was it, a hundred fifty million dollar motion picture? Right, yeah. And it's, it was a movie, and it was like a fifteen-year journey. Like he was trying to make it in the early two thousands with Mel Gibson, and then Mel Gibson walked away to make Passion of the Christ. You know, yeah, that, that that kind of took a different road. <laughs> yeah, it did. And just the fact that they shot Fury Road like three years before it even came out. So I'm kind of glad the movie was such a huge hit. Like it was pretty much like I don't like to speak in like objective terms, but in terms of viewing like 2015 cinema, it's easily amongst the most important films. You know, both for like, you know, what it, you know, represents and what it connotes, as well as just the fact it won like a shit ton of Oscars too, which is like something that people were like, you know, imagining would be cool to happen and it actually does happen. And you're like, oh my God. Yeah, it's not just a dope movie, but it's a movie that ev- almost everyone liked. I mean, it's, it gets really close to that universal acclaim. It was, I don't know, I, I think it was a pretty decent popular hit, right? It made its oh, yeah. money back. <laughs> Yeah, it did. And it was like really big and successful worldwide. And in terms of being like a violent, R-rated adult, you know, sort of catering sort of thing, it's really, you know, amazing that it was able to have that level of response to it. Obviously, it wasn't like a Marvel-sized blockbuster hit, but it was still, in the context of what it was, it is amazing. Yeah, I mean, nothing nothing other than a Marvel movie can be a Marvel-style blockbuster unless you're a Star Wars or a Jurassic Park, I guess. Yeah. But, I mean... No, Fury Road was an event and a feat. Mm-hmm. Right. And I'm just hoping that it's not going to take as long for him to do the follow-up film, which I feel like everyone's sort of like, you know, hoping is going to happen at some time in the next couple of years or so. Um, I wrote on Twitter just the other day that it'd be amazing if, since, you know, he George Miller started his career with this Mad Max trilogy from the original to Beyond Thunderdome, and now he's trying to, bring it back and do like another set of trilogy films. I believe he has another film with like Tom Hardy sign up for it called the wasteland, which is supposed to sort of be the sequel to fury road. And obviously it's not going to have the same characters as fury road, but it's going to be a completely new atmosphere. And I'm just thinking the sky's the limit for that. Like based on what he was able to pull off of that movie, I am just totally on board. If anything that happens now, basically to tie it way 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 back with the first one of the first questions you asked maybe that's the secret sauce to making a good sequel is that you take your central hero and you keep sort of certain thematic and visual things and then you just plug him into these different wild situations right and it's all about i guess the uh inherent values of the character which are guiding things along it doesn't even matter if you have a new actor playing them or whatnot as long as like the spirit and the vitality of what's always been there is apparent, it's always going to be a recipe for success. Yeah, it's a matter of vibe. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a pretty good point, actually, to wrap things up on. Uh, thank you, Derek, for coming on the show. No problem. Um, Thanks for having me. No problem. Uh, I guess, do you have any plugs you want to give? Like, uh, where can we find you in your writing online? Oh, I got a couple of plugs. Um, most of my writing you can find at dimthehouselights.com. That's dimthehouselights.com. It's the film criticism website that I run with my uh, with my good friend Juan Barquin. Uh, most of my stuff goes there. 
And uh, you can probably follow me on Twitter as well. I'm pretty active there. I'm at Derek underscore G. And uh, yeah, follow me on Letterboxd too. (laughs) (laughs) I'm at Derek underscore G there as well. And uh, we're not recording for the time being. We're in the middle of a, a hiatus between seasons. But I too have a podcast called Stuck in the Middle with You. It's me and my buddy Juan Barkeen from Dim the House Lights. We watch a movie with a 50% uh, Rotten Tomato score and uh, see on what side of the critical consensus we fall on. And uh, that's real fun. Uh, our next episode, I don't know when it's coming out, but it is going to be on uh, a Jean-Claude Van Damme movie. It's going to be on uh, John Woo's Hard Target. Oh, sweet. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I think that's just like, you know, the bee's knees. Well, thank you. <laughs> oh, no problem. Uh, thanks again, Derek, and thanks to you, the listener, for tuning into the Sequelizer. You can subscribe to our feed on SoundCloud and on iTunes, and follow, find all of the latest updates on Twitter at the Sequelizer. Until next time, go watch a sequel. <laughs>